Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, the video version where we get to the bottom of issues, trends, and developments in future fuels and vehicles. I'm your host, Tammy Klein, a principal consultant with Future Fuel Strategies, and I'm really pleased to do my first video uh, podcast interview with Dan Cecil, who is the product marketing manager for UOP, and we're going to talk SAF. Dan, welcome to the program. Hi, Tammy. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for being here. Thanks for experimenting <laughs> with me on this. Um, so um, for the listeners, uh, I have done quite a bit of coverage re- recently in my service, uh, the Future Fuel Outlook or the Outlook service, uh, covering um, all kinds of trends and developments, but I've been focusing recently on SAF or sustainable aviation fuel. Um, Many of you who might be listening to this uh, attended a recent uh, web conference that I just did about the future of SAF. And now what I decided to do is actually talk to uh, some other experts in the space, the producers, the technology developers, like UOP, to get their views on the issues. So Dan, as we get into it uh, for the listeners, and I should now say viewers who may not be familiar, can you talk a little bit about uh, UOP and what you do at UOP? Sure, thank you. So UOP has been uh, in the refining and petrochemical space for over 100 years uh, UOP is the preeminent licensor of petroleum refining technologies, petrochemical technologies, uh, gas and gas processing technologies, as well as renewable fuels technologies. So, you know, we have, we have a long and storied history working with the petroleum refining industry to produce both transportation fuels as well as petrochemicals, and now, of course, renewable fuels. So uh, within UOP, I work in our renewable fuels group. Uh, I am the product marketing manager. Uh, so effectively, I work with our, our sales team, our engineering team, our development team to, to understand the needs of our customers, as well as to help bring new technologies to market to meet the needs of our customers or the future needs of our customers. So uh, I've been with UOP since 2014, and I've actually been working in renewable fuel since 2009. So uh you know, here in the United States, uh, you know, I go back to the early days of the RFS program and also now work uh, with our with our engineering and salespeople worldwide, not only in the U.S. market, but also in Europe and in Asia and Latin America and everywhere where there's a lot of activity going on around advanced biofuels. So let's talk about the eco-fining process. Um, so UOP developed this process. What is it for the the viewers and listeners who may not be familiar, and what has been UOP's experience uh, licensing the technology to date? Sure. How's it going? Sounds like it's going pretty good from some recent news, but I'll let you uh, I'll let you <laughs> talk about that. <laughs> yeah, the th- the things are going well. Uh, we're very active in this space right now in renewable fuels. So the, the echo finding process was originally developed by UOP along with ENI of Italy, who was our partner in the development. And uh, it was created in the, the late 2000s and has been in commercial operations since 2013. Uh, the echo finding technology is used to produce renewable diesel and renewable jet fuel. 
uh, and, and was the first uh, licensed commercial technology in this space. Um, you know, we've, we've really never been more active than we have now, and the activity really has been uh, a worldwide uh, development. So not just uh, North America, but Europe and Asia and everywhere. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of, of activity here. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, the response to our technology in the market has been very good. Uh, not only in the renewable diesel space, but along with the uh, renewable jet fuel space. As, as you touched on, there's you know a lot of increased interest around sustainable aviation fuels, and we're seeing a lot of increased interest today for producers trying to look forwards to what this SAF future might look like. So what do you think of the trend? So what we're seeing now is, I, I think we are we're in the energy transition that has begun. And you can see refineries, uh, refining companies all around the world looking at their options, assessing their, their options, what they're going to do. So what do you think of the trend of uh, refineries shutting down and potentially converting to HVO, which uh, in the U.S. we call renewable diesel production? Um, do you see a lot of these refiner, refineries ultimately moving from HVO to SAF, sustainable aviation fuel, and how does ECOFining uh, fit into that picture from, from your perspective? So it, it's clear that the refining industry is reevaluating the use of their existing assets and infrastructure at their sites. And I, I think it's, it's a combination of two things. One, it's, there's been a clear shift towards an interest in producing sustainable fuels and renewable fuels worldwide. But it's also been some of the ramifications of, of COVID and some of the downturn in the petroleum demand that's forced the refining industry to reevaluate what these assets, uh, how they might be performing and what they might be able to be repurposed towards. You know, in, in the renewable diesel space in particular, right now with, with the high levels of mandates in Europe and in North America, in particular in California, uh, there's a high premium uh, paid for the renewable diesel fuel. And so the profit opportunities that exist for the production of those fuels is large. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the refiners are smart operators and they're looking at this and they're saying, well, maybe we can take some of this underutilized capacity and repurpose it for the production of renewable fuel. So, you know, that, that I think that that direction is what accounts for the announcements in the U.S. and Europe to either uh, do revamps of existing equipment or potentially do uh, development of renewable fuel projects that are co-located at a refining site. So, you know, you can imagine developing that kind of a project utilizes uh, a lot of the utilities and offsites that exist at the existing refinery. So you're really only adding the core technology process to convert uh, those sustainable feeds into renewable diesel and jet fuel. So, do you see, because what I'm seeing is just a huge, or in, at least in terms of announcements, and I've been cautioning, it's like there's a, there's a big gap between the announcement um, and the, the steel in the ground. There's a lot that has to, has to happen, including permitting and things like that. Um, but I, I am seeing a huge scale up um, in Europe. And also just because of the, the confluence of events that you just talked about, scale up in Europe, scale up in the, the, the U.S. I think my own analysis, which I think is conservative because not every uh, plant reduces or uh, uh, produces their 
their capacity uh, numbers. And actually, my numbers are now out of date with, with you know, like Holly Frontier announcements and they, you know, like things are happening every day. Mm-hmm. You know, but there's enough renewable diesel potential to absorb, you know, the California diesel uh, market. And so that raises issues with all of this expansion about feedstock potential, feedstock availability. Uh, from your perspective within UOP, how are you all uh, seeing that? Is the concern overblown? Um, is it um, valid? Um, how, uh, how are you all seeing that? So the, the, the feedstock question is uh, an important component of project development. And, and as you touched on with all of the new announcements or, or potential announcements for, for new projects in this space, it has brought the issue of feedstock uh, procurement to probably the number one success point with regards to developing a project. So, um, you know, we have looked at uh, a lot of the potential supply for sustainable feeds going forwards, uh, as well as utilizing some existing uh, vegetable oil crop, oil seeds, uh, as well for these fuels. And, you know, traditionally, the, the growth of the supply of the feedstocks has sort of matched the increase in, in renewable projects. Mm-hmm. But of course, with the with the large surge we're seeing today, people are starting to question whether the, the supply can expand to meet it. You know, I think there's a lot of untapped potential for sourcing sustainable feeds from, from other parts of the world. Uh, as opposed to sourcing them locally in, in North America and in Europe. So I think there's opportunities there to, to bring that supply to market. Um, but these, you know, the, the, the challenge of bringing sustainable feeds to market is more difficult than bringing uh, petroleum or, or even uh, established vegetable oil seeds like, like soybean oil or uh, rapeseed or canola to market, just because they are generally produced in smaller quantities. Mm-hmm. So the logistics of bringing those to market and just the, the labor and the challenges and the cost of doing that are higher. Are higher. So it's, it's, it's definitely a challenge that, that our customers are seeing and are trying to figure out new ways to handle it. You know, I think the, the other area of optimism here is, is around the development of alter, alternative seed oil crops. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about Carinata mm-hmm. or Amelina or Pennycrest. You know, these are, these are crops that potentially can be grown on uh, on fallow lands or as shoulder crops to the existing uh, food crops grown uh, in agriculture today. So these are these are potential oil seeds that would not compete with the with with the food market or or with the animal feed market. So you know, those are emerging crops, but you know, they're starting from such a small base that I think it's going to take uh, an extended period of time for those to, to come to market. But we know already of a few success stories in that space where they're delivering volumes, albeit small, uh, to customers for use uh, for renewable fuels. So, you know, I, I guess over the long term, uh, we're optimistic that the feedstock supply and, a, and a, most importantly, a sustainable feedstock supply uh, will be available to producers. Um, it's just going to be more challenging for them for sourcing, and, and that might result potentially in a little higher cost. So, um, yeah, if you if we talk about I mentioned renewable diesel, but we're here talking about SAF as well. I mean, you know, if you see a large scale scale up of of renewable diesel and that stays in 
the um, primarily, at least in, in the U.S., the North American trucking, for, for, for example, because electrification is, is kind of starting up, but, but, but small. Um, and in Europe, in the diesel passenger fleet um, and, uh, and heavy duty, medium duty and heavy duty fleets there. And then you add on, um, you know, the, the possibility of expanding the pool further to accommodate um, SAF, yes, you will need those those feedstocks. So, are you thinking that the scale up? Um, what are we thinking about in terms of you know, like a, a Carinata, for example, ten years maybe driven by the mandates to really sort of figure out you know these issues that you were just talking about with logistics and scale up. It's. I don't think I'm smart enough to be able to put a, <laughs> a time frame on on uh, when those sustainable feeds can scale. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I know I know there's some success behind the, the growth of Carinata, but again, mm-hmm. it, it's just an issue of, of numbers and, and starting from a, a, a lower base. Yeah. It's clear that uh, if the incentives to, uh, you know, supplying feeds uh, and converting them to renewable diesel remain high, that mm-hmm. these feedstocks will come to market. I mean, just the general economics, I think, will be suitable uh, to, to bring these feeds to market. It's just a, it's a period of time and effectively have been able to, to multiply from a small base, uh, to expand it. So, you know, I think there's, uh, a, a number of industry re- reports that are looking at, uh, potential collection efforts of used cooking oil, for example, mm-hmm. or, or animal fats, again, in, in outside of the mandated markets, to where what what would it take to be able to bring those to these to the producers uh, and at a manageable cost, and you know again I think there's there's potential for a little bit of shift in in demand between industries here, but hopefully not uh, obviously any any land use effects from it. So you know I think as long as the industry concentrates on maintaining sustainability as the number one issue with feed uh, procurement, I think you know that this will work out smoothly. Um, I, you know, I think to your point a little bit too around uh, all the announcements of projects. You know, I, I think there's probably a, a few of those projects that may not happen along the time frame that they're uh, predicting today, and so maybe that helps to alleviate, at least to mm-hmm. a small degree, uh, some of the surge in demand for some of these sustainable fees to where we maybe can can grow more smoothly, uh, maybe not more slowly, but more smoothly to be able to uh, accommodate uh, the demand for these feedstocks. Yeah, and I think that's something that I'm watching very closely too. One of the key, I guess, signposts that I'm watching is um, is permitting, how the permitting process is is working because I think, and how, and the pace at which that is moving uh, along. I think that that will say, a lot about go no go because we've seen some projects where there's been um, permitting uncertainties um, or just difficulties um, and projects not come to pass. Um, you know, as as a result. So I think for me, you know, to really see it, you know, not just when the paperwork's filed, but when it's right. issued. I think that's one of the key, um, you know, key signposts that I'm looking at in terms of really assessing. Okay, what what is really, you know, what is really real uh, here? So you talked about incentives. And um, my question is, is, is how do you see the SAF market uh, evolving um, over the next 10 years? And what kinds of policies, we talked a lot about that 
um, on the SAF web conference, um, uh, as you know. What kind of policies do you uh, at UOP or at UOP um, as a whole um, see um, as being, um, you know, most needed and most supportive to help scale up uh, SAF? So the incentives are clearly going to be key to expand the the growth of of SAF. Um, you know, I, I think the the issue right now with the incentives is that they were originally designed for meeting the needs of the, of the transportation, the, the road transportation fuel market. So specifically, renewable diesel, for example, and they weren't structured to accommodate for some of the. Uh, the basic technical issues around producing sustainable aviation fuels. So, for example, uh, using our echo finding process, uh, we, you know, we have the flexibility to produce both renewable diesel and renewable jet fuel. Mm-hmm. But just by just by the, the the jet fuel composition and its components, um, it requires uh, a little bit more additional processing that results in a, in, a, in a modestly higher production price for renewable jet fuel. So this is this is strictly related to the chemistry of producing renewable jet fuel. And so, you know, when, when producers are evaluating the economics of producing jet fuel versus diesel, they, they look at this and say, well, you know, if the incentives are equivalent for either one, I may produce renewable jet, uh, excuse me, renewable diesel fuel because uh, I have better production economics than producing jet fuel, right? So what that means, I think, is that government authorities, as they start to uh, to prioritize sustainable aviation fuels in these markets, they need to take a look at what those mandate structures look like for aviation fuels and say, okay, you know, just because of you know the basic chemistry of jet fuel and the production processes, maybe we need to structure these incentives slightly differently. So, you know, I think as as mandates start to become more common, and I know, you know, in Europe, for example, mm-hmm. right, we've got a mandate in Norway, we've got a mandate in Sweden, and it looks like there's going to be increased mandates uh, across Central Europe as well. Uh, you know, I think we'll start to see more incorporation of, of aviation fuel mandates, uh, potentially as part of the, the EU Green Deal, for example. Um, you know, and I think as as North America and other regions start to prioritize this as well, I think, you know, we'll start to see, I don't want to say separate programs, but at least separate incentive structures for, for sustainable aviation fuels. So, you know, like, like I said, it's not, it's not so much that uh, the, the incentives need to be different, but they just need to incorporate some basic realities of the production of renewable jet fuel versus renewable diesel. So um, you mentioned Europe, and that was one of the questions, is which which countries, regions do you see leading? And and from my perspective, I do see um, Europe stepping out first, but I do think that there are provisions, you know, it it, it was very interesting if you look at the House Democrat plan, the Senate Democrat plan, uh, Biden, um, you know, transition plan for transportation, energy, climate, you know, Aviation is a part of that, and not just aviation efficiency, but um, you know, outright consideration of policies that would appear to support SAF, so national LCFS or specific SAF mandate in the U.S. So um, it seems like, from what you're saying, Europe is leading. Um, but do you also see the, the the federal government with the incoming administration kind of getting in the ring, also, so to speak? Right. So, uh, you know, with with regards to the project inquiries that we have seen 
uh, in the last six to 12 months, it's clear that the European market is at least uh, incorporating the optionality to produce renewable jet fuel in addition to renewable diesel. So, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're at least thinking ahead about what some of these future mandates might look like. And even if they're not producing renewable diesel or excuse me, renewable jet fuel today, they'll have the, the potential to do it in the future. And, and maybe they'll concentrate on renewable diesel now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, one of the advantages of the echo finding technology, of course, is that is that flexibility to to produce both types of fuels uh, to go up and back as needed. So that's something that we're trying to emphasize with our customers. Um, you know, with with regards to North America, you know, in California, the LCFS program does have incentives set up for uh, securing credits for the production of sustainable aviation fuels. Um, but that's really not been rolled out nationally as well. I, I do agree, as you mentioned, that uh, with the with the new administration coming in uh, and some potential changes in what some of these programs might look like, I, I would expect to see uh, a longer term rollout of sustainable aviation fuels here in here in the United States. But um, you know, I, I think the uh, the European market being a leader here will also put some pressure. On North America, and okay. also, uh, you know, with, with regards to the individual airlines, you know, I think the, the a lot of the individual airlines here in the United States have done a, a good job of starting to prioritize sustainable fuels, uh, even albeit at a, at a higher cost than petroleum fuels. And I think, you know, like like a lot of these programs start to come together collectively from different interests or from different parties. You know, so it's a combination of the airlines. It's a combination of the passengers who are looking to fly more sustainably. And then it's it's interest from from the regulatory officials and trying to figure out ways to work collectively to incentivize it. All right. That's the show. Uh, I want to thank everyone for listening and for watching. I want to thank Dan so much for being on the video podcast today. It was a great pleasure to, to talk with you uh, about how UOP sees uh, SAF. Um, and if you're looking for more analysis on future fuels related issues, please head to my website, futurefuelstrategies.com. Sign up for my free biweekly newsletter. And thanks again for listening.